The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we begin our service today, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship, ready to worship the Lord through the uh, singing of hymns of praise to God as well as the study of His Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that we have access to your throne of grace because of the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it is for that reason that we are able to gather together today because we have a salvation that is secured forevermore because it was paid for in full by his death on the cross. Now, Father, we come together today to worship you, to honor you through singing hymns of praise to you as well as the study of your word which is the highest form of worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning our scripture reading continues in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, so if you want to read along with me, we'll begin in verse 89. Psalm 119, verse 89. As the psalmist writes this, he continues to praise the enduring qualities of God's Word. Note that in this section how he praises the fact that the Word of God is secure forevermore and it is in the first verse he says your Word is settled in heaven. That gives us confidence that God's Word never changes. It is infallible. It is inerrant and it is sufficient for everything in life. Psalm 119 beginning in verse 89. Forever O Lord your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances, for all are your servants. Unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me. For I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me, but I will consider your testimonies. I have seen the consummation of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Let's stand together and we'll sing hymn number four, How Great Thou Art. Scripture teaches that it's the responsibility of every believer priest to support the local church as well as missions. The principle for giving is always based on grace. Grace is exemplified in the fact that God the Father sent His only begotten Son to come to earth as a man and to die on the cross for our sins. For God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the principle of giving is a principle of grace and generosity Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. Will the men please come forward to take up the collection? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you provide all things for us. You provide the air we breathe. You provide the food we eat. You provide all the necessities of life. Everything that we have, everything that we are is a result of your grace. And now, Father, as we worship you through giving, this is but an expression of our, uh, just a token of our, an expression of our gratitude for all that you have provided for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I hope that when you are listening to the choir sing or when you are singing hymns, that it's easy sometimes for us to sort of slip into neutral and we listen, we appreciate what uh, they're singing, we appreciate the music. But think about the words. 
Music has always been a vital part of Christian worship. You can go back into the Old Testament as far back as the Song of Miriam as an expression of their uh, God's victory over Pharaoh back in the book of Exodus. But the words are what's important. They are a reminder of what God has done for us. They remind us of key doctrines, and they are an expression of our gratitude to God for what He has done. That's if it's good hymnody. If it's not good hymnody, then it just usually, what you get in a lot of churches today, it just modeling sentimentality and expression of emotion on the part of the writer. But we try to sing good quality, uh, theocentric, Christocentric hymns here. Before we begin our study of the Word this morning, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Ask the Lord's guidance and direction on our study. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you have given us your Word that As we read in Psalm 119, it was established from eternity past, and it is established forever and ever, that it will never be shaken and there is no flaw or fault in it. And because it is the bedrock of our faith, the bedrock of our knowledge, Father, we can come to your word to find uh, information, to find revelation, to find guidance, directions, solutions to every problem, every issue in life. We thank you that you have also given us God the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and part of his ministry is to illuminate our minds to what the Word teaches, to store it in our soul, and to help us to understand how to apply it in various ways in our own lives. Now, Father, as we study your Word this morning, we pray that we might be able to focus and concentrate on what is being taught, that we might be able to clear our minds from the distractions of events later in the day or things that have gone on previously this week. We pray that you would enable us to focus on your grace and what you have to teach us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we continue our study in the fifth of the seven letters to the seven churches, the letter to the church of Sardis. This is the first of two churches where nothing positive is said. There is nothing said to commend the people, the believers in this church, for their spiritual growth, for their production, for their maturity, nothing of that sort. In fact, what we have is a warning. However, within this warning to this congregation, we realize that there is a minority of believers in the congregation that are advancing spiritually. There's a minority that is, uh, that is obedient to the Word. There's a minority that has not uh, fallen prey to the compromises that have characterized the vast majority of those who are part of this congregation. And so there is a statement uh, for them in verses 4 and 5 related to the promise of reward. Now, the best way to understand these overcomer passages, which is what we're focusing on here in verses 4 and 5, is to understand that when you uh, enter into salvation, when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, at the instant that you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for you, you receive eternal life. You don't receive partial life. You don't receive intermittent life, you don't receive the potential of eternal life, you receive, you receive eternal life, you are adopted into the family of God, you're justified, all of these various things take place at the instant of salvation. It's like an eternal contract, it's like a sports player who signs a contract with the, with the team, but instead of having a contract for four or five years, which they often do, ours is an eternal contract with God that can't be broken. And in carrying out the sports analogy, often you will find a player who is signed to a deal and he's given a basic contract, a basic uh, salary, plus he's given incentive clauses that if he performs at a certain level, then he gets bonuses. And so that's the analogy here is that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we trust in Christ at salvation, we have eternal life. But we not only have an eternal contract that secures that life, we also have incentive clauses, and that's related to rewards and blessings. And that's the focus of these 
overcomer passages that we find uh, such as we have in verses 4 and 5. Let's just take a look this morning at verses 4 and 5. It begins with a contrast in the Greek, but if you're following along, if you have a, a New King James Version or King James Version, it didn't translate the but. It begins with a but, but you have a few names even in Sardis. He is drawing a contrast between these few versus the whole. But you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Then in verse 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Before we get into the core of these, these particular verses, let's uh, just review what's been said so far in the first three verses of this evaluation report. First of all, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is evaluating each of these local churches. The Lord Jesus Christ is presented in this uh, e evaluation report as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He is pictured as a judge. This goes back to our uh, image of Jesus Christ as he appeared to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos back in chapter back in chapter 1. And because of its significance to what we are going to read, I'm going to go back and just read verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1 to remind you of what that image, uh, what that image consisted. Then I turned, John says, to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. So immediately we know that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is, he is clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and his hair white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet are like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. Now all of this image that we see here is of a, of a brilliant, shining white image of the Lord Jesus Christ. His hair is white, his robe is white, he wears this garment that's down to the feet and it's girded about with a with a golden band. Now the imagery there of this robe and the golden band as we studied back in Revelation 1 is the image of a priest. He is coming as a priest judge. That's the thrust of that image. So I just want you to hold that in your thinking because when we come to this uh, understanding verses 4 and 5 where we talk about those in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and then that the overcomer will be clothed in white garments. It's the same kind of garment, the same kind of robe that the Lord Jesus Christ is wearing there in Revelation chapter 1 which indicates that, those, that the reward for the overcomer is related to this the priestly ministry and we know that when we return with the Lord Jesus Christ in the Millennial Kingdom, we will be reigning as priests and kings. So that today we're in the training mode in preparation for being able to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ during the Millennial Kingdom. So the maturity that we achieve during this age, the capacity for wisdom, and which is application of doctrine that we develop during this age, is specifically in preparation for our role as those who will reign as priests and kings during the millennial kingdom. So we see just as an initial observation that that this that what the overcomer gets is related to this future future role during the millennial kingdom. So Jesus Christ appears as the one who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars. The picture is him as a judge. He's he has the two, one in each hand perhaps, and it indicates that he is the source of the full ministry of God the Holy Spirit as well as the one who is in charge of the seven stars which represent the angels of the churches. That is the judgment, those who are responsible for evaluating uh, the local church and recording what is going on in the local church. He's the one who holds the seven spirits of God that whatever these problems are that the local church faces, 
It is Jesus Christ who dispenses the solution. He is the one who sent the Holy Spirit who indwells each believer. And it is Jesus Christ who has provided the solution for every, every problem. So we see Jesus Christ pictured as the judge, the priest, but also the one who provides the solution to our problems. The first thing that he says is, I know your works, that is your production, in, in his omniscience, he knows everything about us. He knows everything about the production of a local church, that which is human good and that which is divine good. And then he says, I know your production, that you have a name or reputation, that you are alive, but you are dead. And I reminded you that there are seven types of death mentioned in the Scriptures. So we have to understand that or we really can get, uh, uh, really can go astray when it comes to understanding what's going on in this, in this passage. The seven types of death in the New Testament are briefly spiritual death, which is the foundation of all death, uh, spiritual death, physical death, sexual death, as Abraham and Sarah were sexually dead. They passed the age of productivity. Positional death, that is, at the instant that we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are identified with his death on the cross. And that identification with his death on the cross is called positional death. So there's uh, spiritual death, physical death, sexual death, positional death, eternal death, which is eternal condemnation uh, in the lake of fire. And then the last two are carnal death and operational death. Those are the two that we need to keep in mind as we read this passage. Let me define those two terms for you. Carnal death is when the believer is out of fellowship with God, operating on the sin nature so that everything that is produced is human good. He's not producing anything that is of value to God that has eternal value. It will be burned up at the judgment seat of Christ as wood, hay, and straw. So we have just the production of human good whenever the believer is out of fellowship. That can be short. You're out, you, you commit some sin, you're out of fellowship for five minutes, five hours, it's not a lengthy period of time. You keep short accounts. You use 1 John 1, nine. confess your sins. You're back in fellowship, cleansed of sin, moving forward. That's carnal death. Operational death is when you go into extended periods of carnality where you're out of fellowship for weeks, months, years, and your life counts for nothing because you are not uh, utilizing the spiritual assets that God has provided for you. You're not growing spiritually. And so everything that is produced in your life is just wood, hay, and straw. Believers who live in operational death throughout their life are the believers that show up at the judgment seat of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 3, and when their works are evaluated in the imagery of everything being uh, put to the uh, test of fire, the wood, hay, and straw is all burned up. Nothing is left, and we're told they enter heaven yet as through fire. Their salvation is not lost. However, their life was useless as far as producing anything that has eternal value. There's no spiritual maturity. There's no spiritual growth. There's no wisdom. There's no capacity for righteousness. Therefore, they're not prepared at all for any future Role to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the issue with this con congregation. They have an external facade of being doctrinally sound and, and serving the Lord, and they have all kinds of programs, and they're on television, and they have an Internet ministry, and they have all kinds of stuff that goes on, but uh, it's just human good. They have, they're no longer putting the Word of God first and foremost and its application first and foremost in the life of the church. So they are commanded to be calm, that is, become something that they haven't been, that is, watchful, strengthen the things that remain. And then in verse 3 we saw the command that they were to remember how they had received and heard. Now that commandment right there tells us that Jesus is addressing them He's addressing this congregation as a congregation of believers, not as a congregation of unbelievers. Now, I'm making that point clear because when we get into understanding the crucial phrase in the middle of verse 5, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, 
there are those who want to come along and say, well, talk about the fact that they can lose their salvation. Furthermore, there are those who want to equate the overcomer, as we'll see, with all believers, and that that uh, those who don't overcome were simply what the the verbiage they use is false professors. They just had a false profession of faith in Christ. They weren't truly saved, genuinely saved, and that is always a clue. Whenever you see anybody adding some sort of of adjective to the word uh, saved or an adverb to the word saved, then they're basically in the lordship salvation camp. Now, if you don't know what lordship salvation is, it's basically the idea that the only way that you can know that you're saved, truly saved, in the long haul is if you have what they'll say is works that are in keeping with righteousness. If you don't have the right kind of works, you weren't really saved to begin with. You just had a false profession. You weren't truly regenerate. And the only way you can know you're saved is by the works, the fruit that you produce over the uh, course of your life. So up to the point that you die, you can't truly know, can't truly have an assurance of your salvation because the real test of whether or not your faith was genuine is these kind of works. So lordship salvation always produces some sort of uh, fruit inspectors who are trying to figure out if you've got the right kind of right kind of works. So I'm, what I'm doing here is laying a foundation to, so we understand that at the very core of this evaluation report, Jesus is indicating that there are two categories of believers in this congregation. There's one category of believers that are failures at this point. They are not walking by the Holy Spirit. They're not producing the any, anything by the Holy Spirit. There's no fruit of the Spirit. There's no spiritual growth. There's no spiritual advance. They're not uh, developing any capacity for uh, uh, righteousness at all. But they are saved. If they weren't saved, then verse 3, which is addressed to these believers who are failures, these who have the name of being alive but are dead, verse 3 would be absolutely meaningless unless they were saved. If they weren't saved, what would they be remembering? They wouldn't be remembering anything. So it's clear that verse 3 addresses the large segment of this congregation that are believers that have become complacent in their spiritual life. They're no longer walking by the Holy Spirit. They just have an external form of of godliness of the spiritual life, but they are by their practice, by their day-to-day life, denying the genuine power of the spiritual life, which is the walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. So, having challenge these failure believers, these believers who are not going anywhere with what they need to do to recover, there is a positive statement of potential reward to those who are hanging in there in their spiritual life and the few that are going forward. And this is the focus of verse 4. It is contrasting the operationally dead majority with those few who are spiritually vibrant and advancing in their spiritual life. Verse 4 says, But you have a few names even in Sardis. There's a bit of sarcasm there that despite the fact that most of you are operationally dead, there are a few names who haven't defiled their garments. Now it will probably be next week before we come back and look at what that word means, but the fundamental sense of the concept here is just that they are they are, are to be defiled is to live in ongoing carnality. There's a few that have not defiled their garments. It's not talking about individual acts of sin. It's talking about being uh, being operationally dead. That's what the context tells us. It is the few have not defiled their garments. That's in contrast to the many that have defiled their garments. How has the context already defined that? They have a reputation of being alive, but they are dead. Therefore, we just by looking at the passage, we can understand that those who are uh, who have uh, defiled their garments are those who are operationally dead. Therefore, those who have not defiled their garments are not 
believers who have not committed sin. There's a good double negative for you. In other words, it's not talking about believers who have been living sinless lives of perfection. Because all believers sin. Every one of us continues to have the same rotten, corrupt sin nature after salvation that we had before we were saved. Regeneration does not diminish or minimize or reduce or change or transform the sin nature. That is sometimes taught that at regeneration the sin nature is no longer as corrupt and sinful as it was prior to salvation. The sin nature is still the same corrupt nature it was before we're saved. However, what we gain at salvation is a new nature. We gain the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. We are, first of all, we're born again. That's the new nature. We're born again. We have the uh, have a new human spirit, which gives us a capacity to know God, to know the things of God, to understand the doctrines of the Scripture, and to begin to grow spiritually. When we're born again, we're born as a newborn baby. And as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 2, we are commanded to desire the sincere milk of the Word that we may grow by it. So as a newborn baby, we have to grow and advance spiritually, and that's based on the study of the Word of God and the application of the Word of God. So we come to first verse 4 and we realize there's a, there's a minority here, a small segment, that, has, that is not living in operational death. They have not defiled their garments. And the Lord says that they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. That is the promise. That is the incentive clause. That because they are not living in operational death, any believer that is operating his spiritual life on the basis of the Holy Spirit is going to grow in advance, and there is a future promise of walking with the Lord in white. And that has to do with their future reward. We'll come back next time to develop what that uh, means. For they are worthy. And then verse 5 states, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Now just a note here. We'll have to come back and deal with this a little later. He who overcomes in context is clearly in contrast to these operationally dead believers who are not overcoming. Now the reason I say that is because in much of the commentaries that you read on Revelation, much of the teaching that you hear on Revelation, the concept of an overcomer is equated to a believer. Everyone who overcomes is a believer. Every believer is an overcomer because of a passage in 1 John which says that uh, that uh, all of us have overcome the world because we have believed in Jesus Christ. And so there are many people who take the passage that uh, to indicate that overcoming equals those who have expressed faith in Christ. But the issue there is, is the faith there in terms of phase one faith, uh, justification for salvation, or is it talking about ongoing trust in Christ and the spiritual assets he's given us in the spiritual life. Now that we'll get to next time. And the reason I bypassing several things in verses 4 and 5 is because when we look at these two verses, they hang together. You have to interpret the whole thing. You have to understand what they are saying. And the core issue is in the middle of verse 5 that we have to understand. And that is this phrase, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. This is a difficult passage to interpret. There's a lot of different things that are written in it. But in some sense, we have to understand what is going on in verse 5. And then we sort of back our way up to understand everything else that's going on. You have to, in many times in Bible study, you have to go through about four or five verses and catch a core element that may be three or four verses down in the paragraph before, and make sure you understand that, and then that becomes the interpretive key that unlocks the meaning of uh, an entire section. So the interpretive key that's going to help us unlock the meaning of verse 4 and 5 and the incentive clause to the overcomer believer is related to understanding this phrase, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Now when we look at that, we recognize that there's a couple of different ways 
in which we have to interpret this phrase. Two different ways. The first is to understand the phrase blotting out his name as a reference to losing salvation. Since the name is originally written in the book of life, to have it blotted out or removed would suggest that the person has lost their uh, salvation. Of course, the other option automatically is that whatever blotting out his name means, it doesn't refer to losing one's salvation. So before we can go very far into this, we have to go back and review the doctrine of eternal security. The idea that a person can lose their salvation is in direct contrast to a doctrine known as eternal security or assurance of salvation. You hear both terms, and they refer to the same thing, that the believer is eternally secure in their salvation and from the instant of salvation has, because of the internal witness of God the Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 8, has uh, an assurance of their salvation. The idea that you can lose your salvation is an idea that is usually associated with a theological system known as Arminianism. Arminianism came out of the Reformation. Arminianism is named for uh, not somebody who was racially an Armenian. His name was James Arminius, and that was our Jacobus Arminius, he, that which was the Latin name. And back in those days, theologians took Latin names and they wrote their theologies in Latin. And in fact, he was a theology professor in uh, in Holland, which was dominated by the what was what is the Dutch Reformed Church. So they were very Calvinistic. And he came to a different understanding of the key doctrines of predestination, as well as the Calvinistic doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Now, it's that that doctrine of the perseverance of the saints which is the real bugaboo here. If you think about Calvinism, and for those of you who don't think about these things on a daily basis, the way you remember Calvinism is through a little acronym. We have floral theology this morning. I think that with all the flowers up here from the wedding yesterday, somehow that fits. You have two different floral theologies. You have tulip theology and daisy theology. Tulip theology, the acronym T-U-L-I-P, five letters, stands for the five points of Calvinism. T is for total uh, inability. Total inability, which means that in your fallen condition as a human being, you are completely incapable and unable of doing anything that can merit God's favor. You can't even express positive volition and you won't express positive volition every human being is is locked down in negative volition and won't see light can't see light doesn't care to see light and can't even express positive volition because in their view even positive volition is meritorious so you can't do anything and if you define it that way then everything else follows through in the system systems are systems because they're logically consistent. The U in TULIP stands for unconditional election. Unconditional election. And unconditional election means that God chooses in eternity past whom He will save and who He will not save. Full-bore hyper-Calvinism is usually double predestinarian, which means God not only predestines those to salvation, but he predestines others to eternal condemnation. Because, you see, if man can't do anything toward God, can't even express positive volition to God, then God must do everything for that individual in order for them to be saved. So unconditional election means that God doesn't base his choice on any condition whatsoever. Now, the problem I have with that terminology, among other things, is that because the Word of God doesn't state a condition, doesn't mean a condition doesn't exist. Now, that may be a little heavy for some of you this morning to think through the logic of that statement, especially since a number of you were involved in that wedding that went on past midnight last night. And we all stayed up too late. So let me say that again. Just because the Scripture doesn't state a condition in God's knowledge for election 
doesn't mean there wasn't a condition in his thinking, which would be what he knew is omniscience. That's what I'm getting at. So unconditional election, the very verbiage has problems. I like the term unmerited because that allows for God's sovereignty to coexist with human freedom. So unconditional election is there you. The L is limited atonement. See, if God is going to elect the few, like, you know, you four down here are the elect, the rest of you, well, you know, I'm, you're, you're all eternally damned. Well, if I'm going to choose you, but you still can't express positive volition, and you can't do anything meritorious, then I'm not going to die for the rest of you because that would just be a waste. So I'm only going to die for you four. So limited atonement grows out of unconditional election which grows out of a view of total inability. So I'm only going to die for you. Now I've got to make sure that you're going to get saved, so my grace toward you is going to be irresistible. You can't resist it. So I am going to uh, do something to you so that you will believe, and then I will regenerate you in full-bore hyper-Calvinism. These four are going to be regenerated before they believe. Because in full-bore Calvinism, faith is meritorious because it's a gift. That's how they tra- translate, uh, interpret Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It, meaning the faith, is the gift of God. So see, you're so, you're, you're so incapable of anything that I have to irresistibly give you grace, and then I give you faith. So that the faith that... Calvinism sees a believer having is a different kind of faith than the faith you exercised this morning when you were running late and you believed that your car would start. So you were believing something. You were exercising faith and you believed it would start up right away and you'd be able to get here in time. You believed that there wouldn't be any traffic out on the beltway and that you could push push the time envelope a little bit and get get here in time. See, we exercise faith in all kinds of ways day in and day out. And in uh, hyper-Calvinism, in five point, what is called five-point superlapsarian Dortian Calvinism, don't you love it? I just love all these terms. That the faith is meritorious. I have to give you the right kind of faith. So see, everybody, these four are the elect, but everybody over here has said they believe in Jesus. But see, that was a false profession because you don't, you don't have the right kind of works in keeping with your, your faith. So you're just a bunch of false professors. The rest of you over here, y'all are pagans. You never did express anything. Y'all are, y'all are going to be, uh, you think you're saved, but you're really not. And that's, that's what you end up with in uh, Lordship Salvation. Now, the reason you're, you four are going to know that you're saved is because of the P. See, the L was limited atonement. Christ only died for them. The I is irresistible grace. In order to get them saved, the Holy Spirit is going to irresistibly... They have no, they, they're dragged kicking and screaming into salvation. It's irresistible. And then the P is perseverance. And perseverance means that if you're truly saved... You will persevere in good works until death. You may sin. You may sin uh, horribly. You may sin horribly for a year or two. But you will not reject Christ. You won't deny that he saved you. You, you. you can't believe in Christ, truly believe in Christ, except the free gift of salvation one year. And then the next year say, well, you know, I'm just... I just was sold a bag of goods. I don't like that Christianity stuff anymore. I think I'm going to go be a Hindu or I'm going to be a New Age or atheist or whatever. See, you didn't persevere. So if you didn't persevere, you're not really saved. So even though often Calvinists will talk about perseverance as including eternal security, they're not really eternally secure and they do not really have assurance because assurance comes only from the fact that they persevere all the way to the all the way to the end and you can ask lordship advocates and i remember about i don't know it's been a while now late 80s when john macarthur who's pastor of a large church out in southern california is probably the most widely known 
uh, popular proponent of lordship salvation out there today. John MacArthur wrote his first book expounding this called The Gospel According to Jesus, and he was invited by a Christian bookstore in Irving, Texas, where I was pastoring, to give a presentation. And so they had a pastor's breakfast, and there were probably 25 or 30 pastors there that showed up. And right on the front row, just just sit, sitting there right in front of him was, of course, Tommy Ice and Robbie Dean. So the first question we asked Dr. MacArthur when he got through was, well, on the basis of what you just said, do you know you're going to heaven? He said, I'm 99% sure. <laughs> See, that's the most you can get. Why? Because tomorrow or the next day, I might demonstrate that I'm just a false professor and I just reject Christ and, and I don't have any real assurance or eternal... It's not that they lose salvation. They never were saved. It was a false profession. He'd be part of this group over here. You said you believed in Jesus, but it wasn't the right kind of faith. It was because it wasn't the faith that God gave you. Okay? Now, that's a great theology lesson this morning. You all have learned what... Uh, what the flower of Calvinism is all about, tulip. But see, on the other end of the spectrum, you have the flower of Arminianism. And the flower of Arminianism is daisy theology. You know, daisy theology, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. See, you never know, you, you, one day you're saved, the next day you committed some sin, and you lost it. God doesn't love you anymore. So you get saved again. You walk the aisle, you dedicate, you invite Jesus into your heart, whatever it is, and then you're saved again. Then the next day you commit some other sin and you lose your salvation. So these are the two extremes. Well, Arminianism is this theological system. And it was really Arminianism that was first uh, first set forth uh, in Holland, and, and they were challenged by the, because it was a state church, the Dutch Reformed Church, the Reformed church or the Calvinists challenged them as being heretics so they presented their five points of Arminianism which were called the five remonstrants and then the Calvinists countered by saying no those five things are all wrong there are these are the five accurate statements called the counter remonstrants which came to be called tulip which I just uh, just went over for you so the uh, part of the Arminian system was that you could lose your salvation and that flowed out of the foundational belief that man was not totally depraved, totally unable. They are able to do something that merits God's grace. So because they can do something to merit God's grace, they can do something to unmerit that grace or to lose salvation. As I said for years, that anybody who thinks that you can lose their salvation has works lurking in their gospel somewhere. You may not see it overtly, but somewhere under the covers are works. You're doing something to gain God's approval and God's blessing. It's They don't have a pure grace salvation. So the idea, you really have two different ideas here. The hyper-Calvinist idea is that you, 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 you can't really know you're saved until you die. If you persevere in works that are in keeping with your faith, then you were saved. You do have eternal security if you're truly part of the elect. I mean, these four are eternal security. It's not that you lose salvation. It's just that you, over here, the false professors, you never had it to lose it. You just thought you did. You just said you believed in Jesus, but it was the wrong kind of faith. On the other extreme, you have those who believe that you can lose your your salvation. You can commit some sin or you can become permanently carnal and therefore you can uh, lose your salvation. Now this whole doctrine that you can lose your salvation fails on various various fronts. And Let me just give you kind of three summations and then we'll go through some scripture and some details. First of all, the idea that you can lose your salvation fails because it assumes that you can commit some sin or series of sins that's too great for the grace of God. That you can commit some sin or series of sin that God just, I just can't cover that. I, my grace is good. It'll, go, it'll cover a lot, but it just won't cover that. Second problem is that it assumes that you can commit some sin or series of sins about which the omniscience of God was ignorant and therefore 
It wasn't paid for by Christ on the cross. God got caught off guard. You woke up this morning, committed some sin, and God, oops, I didn't pay for that. You lost your salvation. So that's what that that's the a hidden assumption in the idea that you can lose your salvation. And third, another failure is it assumes that you do something to merit the approval of God to be saved, and thus you can do something to lose that favor. It's always hidden there. Somewhere, somewhere, I remember years ago when I taught this at College of Biblical Studies, I was teaching an intro theology class, and I had some folks in there that had never really wrestled with eternal security before, and some of them liked to watch Jimmy, Jimmy Swaggart. I liked to listen to his, to his cousin play country music, but they had, uh, or both of them, but anyway, uh, so he said, well, well, because he doesn't believe in eternal security, and so they were quoting Swaggart, and I said, well, the problem is Swaggart's got works hidden somewhere in there, and eventually that that comes out, but people have to look for it. So, no, 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 he believes in salvation by grace. Now, anybody who believes you can lose your salvation has got works lurking somewhere in their theological woodpile. All right, let's look at what the Scripture says about eternal security. First of all, definition. Eternal security is the work of God which guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal. That's a key concept here. Jesus is coming to give eternal life. The work of God which guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost, terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed by, that should be any thought, typo there, reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. So today, and this is how I always smoke out the uh, the lordship guys, because there's a lot of people out there who, who don't like lordship salvation, and they define it as saying that lordship means that you have to make Jesus Christ lord of your life. Well, there's a lot of people who don't like that. They recognize that the scriptures do not equate faith with commitment, and the scripture doesn't say that you have to make Jesus Lord of your life. So they, they're, they're kind of in between. But see, the real issue, as I tried to point out in my earlier uh, explanation, is the real bugaboo is that P in tulip. The issue is Calvinistic lordship perseverance, that the way you know you're saved is you persevere in your belief in Jesus. You persevere in good works, and if you don't persevere then you weren't really saved. So they, they would say that if you're, my favorite illustration is to say, okay, you're, you're a pimping crack dealer down in Harlem, and you run into a Salvation Army person at Christmas who gives you a gospel track, and you understand that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. You understand that Jesus became uh, incarnate, and he, for the purpose of going to the cross to die for your sins, you understand that you are a sinner, and you understand that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins, and you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and you truly trust him at that instant in time, knowing that because you're a pimp and crack dealer, that you have no hope of ever going to heaven on your own because you're just rotten from the inside out, you believe in Jesus. Then you go home and you do a little more crack and you got your, uh, you know, your girls your, in, in your crib and you wake up the next morning and you say, hmm, that guy really sold me a bill of goods yesterday. I'm having a lot more fun doing my drugs and hanging with my women and everything and, you know, I'm to heck with that. And a couple of weeks later you, you uh, overdose and you're dead. Are you going to go to heaven or not? Well, you ask that question of a lot of people. If they say you're still going to go to heaven, they understand grace. If they say you're not going to go to heaven, they don't have a clue. They don't understand grace. Because what the gospel says is if you trust Christ at any point in your life, at that instant, God regenerates you. And what happens at regeneration is so incredible and so comprehensive and so phenomenal what's involved in God imputing to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's that righteousness that's the basis for your salvation, not anything we do. It's never based on anything we do. We're saved because we possess the righteousness of Christ, and at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, when God the Father gives us 
the righteousness of Jesus Christ, it is that righteousness the Father looks at, and it's on the basis of that righteousness that he says you are justified. And you still possess that same righteousness the next day when you say, I don't believe it anymore. You still have it because it was a free gift that can't ever be taken away. And that's the basis for salvation. So, if you change belief, you're still saved. That's what messed up MacArthur was his best friend in high school and uh, was, was a believer, and they used to do beach evangelism. Now, some of you don't know what beach evangelism is, but beach evangelism, if you're from Southern California, is when you take your four spiritual laws tracks from Campus Crusade and you walk up and down the beach and you evangelize everybody by explaining the four spiritual laws. And if you don't know what four spiritual laws are, well, we'll get into that some other time. So they used to do beach evangelism, and then when they went to college, his best friend uh, became seduced by the dark side of academia, and by the time he got out of college, he'd rejected all of Christianity and become an atheist, and to this day is still an atheist. And so he just can't, MacArthur just couldn't understand how that could possibly happen. So the only thing that could explain it was a guy wasn't, must not have ever been saved to begin with. Second point in eternal security, God the Father's purposes in salvation cannot be overridden. The same group, when we get into Romans 8, 28 and 29, the same group that he foreknew is a group he predestines, calls, justifies, and redeems. Nobody gets dropped out. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. See, those he justifies, every one of them, he glorifies. He doesn't lose a few along the way because they stop believing in Jesus. See, the instant you believe in Jesus, you get justified, and everyone that's justified gets glorified. It's real clear. God doesn't drop anybody. We'll see a passage on that in a minute. Point number three. God the Father's omnipotence is more powerful than human attempts to negate salvation. God the Father's omnipotence. That means he's all-powerful. He's more powerful than anything that we can do. He's powerful enough to provide a salvation that covers every sin. And he's able to keep the believer secure. For example, Jude one twenty four. Now to him who is able, dunamis, he has the power to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless, amomas, with pure Why? Not because you're experientially pure, but because you possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. To present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And then passage is familiar to many of you, John 10, 28 and 29. Jesus said, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Now, a couple of observations here. When Jesus says this, he uses a present tense And that present tense here indicates that this is a permanent possession. He gives permanently eternal life. What does he give? He gives eternal life. He doesn't give the potential for eternal life. He doesn't give a life that can be lost. If it could be lost, it wouldn't be eternal, would it? It'd be two or three days long, two or three weeks long, two or three years long. It wouldn't be eternal. He gives eternal life. So if he gives anything that's not eternal, that can be lost, then he's lying here. But he says he gives eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Throughout Scripture, the hand of God is a metaphor for the omnipotence, the power of God, the strength of God. No one can pull us out of Jesus' hand. But then he intensified the imagery in verse 29. He said, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So we have... We're held in Jesus' hand, and then we've got the Father's hand wrapped around that. That's pretty secure. There's nothing you can do to be taken out of the Father's hand or the Son's hand. Fourth point, God's omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knows every single sin that you will ever commit, and he was able to impute that to Jesus Christ on the cross. God is omnipotent, as we've seen in the previous point. Therefore, between his omnipotence and his omnipotence, he's able to keep you secure. 
because he he had all the sins paid for. No sin that you commit surprises God. No sin was left undealt with. No sin is too great for the plan of God or the grace of God. Don't, people who think they can lose their salvation are just arrogant. They think they can outdo God's plan. Point number five. No one, angelic or human, can bring a charge or condemn those who are saved. Romans eight thirty three to 34. Paul says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. See, that's the core issue. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, the first thing that happens, not chronologically, but logically, they all, all these things happen at the same time uh, chronologically. The first thing that happens logically is the Father imputes the righteousness of Christ to you and you're declared just. So who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now, the point I want to make here, let's go back, is you have two questions. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect, and who is he who condemns? And see, the, the way the Greek is structured here, and the way they ask a question, is such that it, it, it presupposes a specific answer. Presupposes a specific answer. So, um, you know, you may turn to your, your kid and say, you want me to spank you? Well, how many of y'all would say yes to that? See, you, you, in, in English, we do it through intonation and context. It's pretty clear what the answer is that we expect. And in Greek, they do it with grammar and, and vocabulary. So both of these questions expect a negative answer. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Well, no one. No one's able to do that. No angel, no man. Who is he who condemns? Well, no one can. Because you can't get condemned if you possess the justice or the, the righteousness of Christ. Point number six. When we understand the dynamics and complexities of what God must do to save even one unbeliever, you realize how complex it would be to lose salvation. See, that's the problem. Is people have such a small view of salvation that all you're getting is eternal life. You know, no, you're getting just, you know, all kinds of things that are happening to you at the instant of salvation. You're getting justified and redeemed. You're dwelt by the Holy Spirit. You're given a new life. You're just all kinds of things take place at the instant of salvation. Chafer said there were 33. Others have said there were 39 or 40. Others break it down in other ways and come up with 50 or 100. But there's so many things that happen all at the instant of salvation that to lose, think you can lose salvation means that God has to reverse all of that. And that's just absurd. Seventh point. According to John chapter 17, Jesus Christ is praying continuously for us to be kept in salvation. And Jesus' prayers always get answered. So he is constantly praying that the Father would keep us so we, we can't be lost. Eighth point. Christ is the head of the body cannot sever a member once it's joined to the body. See, this is one of those things that happens at the instant of salvation. We become part of the body of Christ. So to lose your salvation means that Jesus takes out a butcher knife and goes whack and cuts off his hand because you just decided you didn't believe in Jesus anymore. Oh, there's another one. Let's cut off my big toe. It's just absurd in terms of the imagery of Scripture to think that you can lose your salvation. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. So we all become part of that body, and we can't be unbaptized or amputated to lose our salvation. Another passage that people have trouble with is in 2 Timothy 2.11-13. This is a faithful saying, For if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Where people stumble is in the second part of verse 12. If we deny him, he will deny us. But these three verses are taken, most, most scholars agree, this was taken out of a popular hymn or song that was sung in the early church, and Paul is using it to illustrate the point that he's making. 
What he says is, point number one, if we died with him, that's that positional death I talked about earlier. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we're identified positionally with that death on the cross so that just as he died for our sins, that's completely paid for. It's substitution is applied. If we died with him, we shall live with him. That's the issue. You died with Christ, you're going to live with him. Second, if we endure, we will reign with him. See, that's what... That's the incentive clause. If you endure, there is an emphasis in Scripture on perseverance and endurance, not to know you're saved, but because endurance and perseverance takes you to maturity, so you're prepared to rule and reign with Christ. If we endure, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. In what way? He will deny us rewards and privileges in the millennial kingdom. These are the believers who have all their works burned up as wood, hay, and straw at the, great, at the judgment seat of Christ, at the Bema seat, and so they have no ruling and reigning responsibilities in the kingdom. Verse 13 says, if we are faithless, that means if we don't grow, if we're faithless, we don't exercise the faith rest drill, there's no growth, there's no maturation, he remains faithful. His faithfulness keeps us saved. He cannot deny himself. It's God's character that keeps us secure. Ninth point, the Holy Spirit seals us at the moment of redemption, which is a guarantee for our protection and salvation. He seals us. The best thing I can think of, y'all all are Texans, y'all ought to understand this. This is like a brand. The Holy Spirit brands every believer. Now, one of the things that I I learned years ago was, was that out in the Old West, when rustlers would come along, they would take a, a, a cinch ring and they would heat it up over the fire and then they would change the brand. So if um, uh, you had a certain brand, they, they'd come along, they'd take that cinch ring and they would, they would change it into another brand so it looked like it belonged to somebody else. And so that happens with a lot of believers. Rather than living uh, their spiritual life and growing and maturing in Christ, they're in carnality, and so they look like an unbeliever. They look like they're Satan's spawn, and they're, they're not the child of God or in the royal family of God at all. And, and as far as we know, looking at it as fruit inspectors, following the lordship model, you think they're lost. But the thing is, there's one way to tell. When they die, they go to heaven. See, in the, old, in the analogy with the branding in the Old West, there's, one way, there's only one way to tell when that brand's been changed. You have to kill the cow, and you have to take the hide off and reverse it. And you can tell by looking at the reverse side that the brand's been changed. See, the only way you're going to know with a lot of believers that they were saved is when they die. They've got to die first, and then you'll find out that they really were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Tenth, the verbal structure in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved, is a syntactical structure in the Greek where you use a present tense of the verb to be with a uh, perfect participle, which indicates that you have, it's a present result of a completed past action. And so it indicates that you have been saved. It can't be reversed. The process has been completed and finalized. The transaction was completely done at the instant you trusted Christ as Savior. And 11, our position in Christ protects us. This is seen in Romans 8, 38 and 39, which I quote frequently. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. At the instant you trust Christ as your Savior, you're placed in Christ, and that is you're placed in the Father's perfect, unconditional love that can never be lost because it's grounded in His uh, contractual uh, love, that chesed love the Old Testament talks about that is faithful to a contract. It can't ever, ever be lost. Furthermore, we're sanctified in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2 and one thirty, And we could, I could join that with uh, passages that talk, about, that talk about the fact that we are made a temple for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 
3, verse 16, the Greek word used for temple there is the word naos, which refers to the inner sanctum of the temple. And we are so positionally cleansed at the instant of salvation that it's irreversible. We can't do anything to change that. And that positional cleansing is based on the fact that we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the conclusion is that the Scripture clearly teaches we can't lose our salvation. So if we can't lose our salvation, what is the Lord saying in Romans, I mean Revelation 3.5 when he says, I won't blot your name out of the book of life? We've excluded one option. Now we'll have to come back and look at other options next time. See, that's how you do Bible study sometimes. You have to go through and you have to eliminate all the things that it can't be, and then what's left is what that must mean. Let's bow our heads and closing prayer. Father, we do thank you that we have a completed salvation, that the Lord Jesus Christ was our perfect Savior. He was impeccable therefore, and sinless and therefore qualified to go to the cross to die as our substitute. He paid for our sins in full. The transaction was completed at the cross, paid in full, and that by trusting in Him alone, by simply believing that He died for our sins, we have eternal life, not partial life, not the possibility of eternal life, but we are given at that instant eternal life, a life that can never be taken away from us. Father, I pray that there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need do is believe, trust that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. At the instant that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life. It can never and will never be taken from you, and you have a new life and a new family in the family of God. Father, we pray for each of us that we would be challenged and encouraged by all that you have done for us in our salvation and be reminded that we are indeed members of your royal family, and as members of your royal family, we are expected to live according to a certain way that we may realize in our experience and time the fullness of what it means to have eternal life. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.